and welcome to Two Sober Chicks. My name is Lisa, part of the half of the dynamic duo known as Julie and Lisa on Two Sober Chicks. And today we bring you another edition of our uh, speaker series edition. Please welcome Scotty B. Good morning, guys. My name is Scott. I'm an alcoholic. <clears throat> really glad to be here. Glad to be sober this morning. You know, what a blessing. Sunday morning and I'm uh, up at 7.05 sharing my experience, strength, and hope, right? It's amazing that somebody even asked me. Um, people that normally were around me before didn't really want me around too much, right? But I, you know, I was nervous when I was asked to speak and then I got everything I thought I was going to talk about uh, went out the window when the care person just said, I'm going to share about what it was like. I got a vault of um, <laughs> what it was like. Wow, what it was like. Well, I guess I guess I'm starting from the beginning here. You know, I grew up um, I grew up in the Bronx. Um, I have two brothers, one older, one younger than me. Um, my younger brother was adopted when I was seven. He's actually um, my blood cousin, my first cousin. It's my mother's sister. She has an estranged sister who also suffers from the disease of addiction, and uh, she had overdosed on the roof of a building in uh, Manhattan and went to the hospital, signed herself out an hour later. They called my mother. My mother went to the hospital that day and never left. Um, she wound up adopting him, actually from Judge Judith Shireland, the one from TV. She's the one that handled that family court case for my mother. And we got my little brother. We had him ever since. So that's my family dynamic. Um, loving family, you know, I, I, don't, I don't have you know, my story's not one of my mother was out there. I had a loving mother. She did the best she could. We were at risk, but she damn sure tried the hardest. My father was a career criminal. Somehow they're married and still together, but uh, there were a lot of periods where he was off in jail and things like that. And uh, that just became the norm. You know, I think about it now. It was never a big deal for my father to come tell me I'm going away for another three years, four years. You know, I'd give him a hug. I'd visit him every weekend. And I continue on with life. Um, but when I was born, he was first God's miracle in my life. I was born, um, I had a congenital heart defect. Uh, I could tell you what it is, but it'll take forever. But basically a little hole in my heart. And uh, when I was that, that particular defect, they didn't normally um, operate on children under one. The heart wasn't big enough. Uh, I had mine at five months old. I had mine because I couldn't, couldn't stop turning blue. And I was in and out of the hospital so much, and I had a blue spell at five months old that, uh, you know, I wasn't coming back. Emergency surgery happened. My mother was facing a decision then and put her faith in uh, Dr. Bowman, which turned out to be a phenomenal surgeon. And here I am today at 41 years old. I haven't been to the cardiologist in 10 years. I seem like I'm in fairly okay health, right? And um, so, so I was spoiled. Needless to say that that spoiled me. My mother said that growing up as a child, nobody allowed me to cry. They didn't want me to have no more blue spells. So my whole childhood, I didn't cry. I did whatever I wanted to do. And it carried on into, definitely into my teens and, and probably into my adulthood. And having alcoholism didn't help trying to manipulate everybody and being able to kind of get what I want. I used that for many, many years, but I'll get to that too. And, um, you know, so there's no big childhood, but for me, I had a, a lot of freedom. Freedom is what I had. Um, living in New York City, you know, for me, 
drinking was like a rite of passage. You know, it's just something that happened. You know, I don't, I don't, can't really tell you my first drink or it was over anything. It was just what we did in that neighborhood, and I just did it better than everybody else, longer than everybody else, and a lot more than everybody else. But, but um, so, so I had so at around fourteen years old, and and this is when kind of the separation and and. and me being alone and doing what I wanted to happen. Um, when I was 14, I remember the day clearly. My mother had suffered something mixed connective tissue disorder. It's a little bit of emphysema, a little bit of lupus. She has um, a ton of lung problems, all respiratory issues. When I was 14, my mother was on 24-hour oxygen. She couldn't take two steps without hyperventilating. And, um, you know, that was her life. It came on. They put her on aggressive doses of chemotherapy, aggressive doses of steroids at the same time. And they, they were just experimenting with her. She was on her last days. And I remember clearly, I was just, me and her were talking about this yesterday before the graduation. And I have my tissue here. If I have to take a moment, just give me a minute. But uh, I remember clearly the room that she pulled me and not my little brother at the time, but my older brother in. And... Uh, she said, Scott, the doctors don't think I'm going to make it past 90 days. Um, you know, and she started telling us about how life was going to be after. And, you know, I remember then not having a feeling at all. But I do remember leaving that room and going back to my old neighborhood and hanging out. I remember brushing it off, you know, but I did something else. What I did was I, uh, at 15 years old, I asked my little girlfriend, is it all right if we have a baby? Because I thought if my mother could live to see one of my children, then, uh, you know, it would be a blessing. And that's the one that graduated yesterday, right? And I got to stand by my mother um, and hold her hand and watch my daughter walk across the stage. I should have saved that for the last part, you know, because that's what it's like now. But so, you know, so at 14, right, my mother... Tells, it, tells me this, and at the time, because of her health, we would stay with my grandmother on another side of town in the Bronx, and I had my whole apartment that I grew up in by myself. My mother was too sick to come check on me. My father was in jail. My brother was wanted by the police, so he didn't go back to that old neighborhood. So every day I would get out, I go out like I'm going to high school, and I would have my own apartment to myself that was furnished in the projects of the Bronx to do exactly what I wanted to do. And that's what I did. I didn't attend high school. My house was the house to hang out and apparently make babies and things like that. And that's, you know, where my drinking started, you know, with 40 ounces and whatever kind of booze we can get our hands on at that age. It wasn't that hard. ID really wasn't the thing where I grew up. And that's where it started. You know, and I drank better than everybody else. Even at 14, 15 years old, I was putting down straight. I remember I started my first about with liquor was gin and it was straight gin and that, that took place for years and even as a raging alcoholic I thought gin was the most disgusting thing in my life but as a teenager to start with that straight for years was you know just the start of a, a brutal battle and um so so I had this baby at 16 years old and I uh my mother's health was doing fairly well, so I dropped the baby with my mother, and I continued to be a 16-year-old. I'm still in the park playing basketball. I'm still drinking at night. 
you know, and I just kind of negated that. So here, 18, I had another child. And uh, so I moved to Pennsylvania to the Pocono area at 18 years old. And I was working for the, uh, not for the Yankees, but I was working in Yankee Stadium. And um, while I was working there, there were things that I was doing to earn a lot of extra money there, a lot of extra money. And uh, that came up with a bunch of other problems. And then drugs got involved in that. And uh, that took place for a couple years also. And um, that kind of went away. I think the alcohol just overshot my, my drug career, if you want to even call it that. But anyway, so I, so I started drinking. And uh, but, you know, I think back at the, how out of control it was then. But during the time, things were actually looking all right. I was traveling where I wanted. I loved traveling. I was traveling around the world. I was living on my own. I, I worked. I got into the mental health field first, and then I was a correction officer for a couple of years and a substance abuse counselor for many years after that. You know, and the whole time I'm just completely out of control and um, still thinking that, you know, I was just a good drinker. And um, yeah, that wasn't the case. But I'm gonna fast forward a little bit. So I got this job at this rehab. Um, somebody asked me at a treatment center I used to work for if I want this job. So I said, sure. She paid me decent money. And I went there, I started working there. But very shortly after that, I realized that I'm probably just, I'm probably worse off than everybody coming through this door. You know, and, and I started hearing about uh, 90 and 90. I wonder what the hell was that and this meeting and that meeting. And, you know, I, I honestly, by that point, I knew I was pretty bad and I was intrigued by sobriety. I, I was, I was, I thought these guys were like superheroes. I, I was, I, I admired people that were able to stop, you know, and, and it's somewhere in that period of time where I knew that me stopping was not happening. You know, so as ironic as this sounds, I kind of devoted my life to helping other people. You know, so much so they promoted me in this place. So much so that I went to rehab twice while I worked there. And they allowed me to go to rehab in another opposite side of the state, come out, and I still had my job there as a supervisor. I couldn't understand why I did that because I did dedicate my life to helping people. Um, I think of Recovering alcoholic and an addict, some of the most powerful people I've ever met in my life. To, to, to just do what we do, I think is absolutely amazing. But, you know, so I'm going to just go right to the dark times. I don't know where I'm at the time here, right? So I, uh, I'm working at this rehab. I get a DUI. I beat the DUI. You know, I had the. I beat it. I thought I was invincible. Beautiful. I continue on. Now I'm going to move to Florida. Wait, let me stop for a second. Let me stop for a second. I had to go back a little bit. I had to go back a little bit. So, so my <laughs> while I'm working in this rehab, uh, you know, my my relationship with my wife, by the way, starts to get a little shaky. I find myself moving out. I moved in with this other girl, and. Um, from the rehab, not a client. She was one of my employees. 
So I moved with this girl, and for a year we lived together, and things seemed fine. My kids were coming over, and I thought that the whole wife thing was under the bridge and stuff like that. And then, and then I go to pick my kids up on a Friday, like I normally do, and uh, nobody answered the door in my wife's house. I had three kids with her. Nobody answered the door. I'm looking through the windows, nothing in the house at all. So I said, oh, shit. So, so I started calling her phone. Takes a couple days for me to find her. Finally, she picks up on Sunday and says she's in Florida. So, you know, I get all pissed off. And, uh, you know, things settled down. About three months later, I take a trip down to Florida to visit my kids. And I was staying in some hotel on 192. And my kids came in the parking lot and they seen me. They hadn't seen me in about four months. And they ran across the parking lot and they gave me a hug. I started crying. They started crying. And uh, she had been living with somebody. And, um, you know, I, I took my phone out and I said, look, you need to call this guy and tell him he has to go. I said, because I don't, I, this is not happening. I need to be with my children. It is what it is. Uh, I'll stop, right? I'll stop. <laughs> I'll stop drinking. You know, so she does it. She does it, gentlemen, leaves. Here I come back down here, right? So I'm gonna come back down here and stop drinking, right? I moved to this place called Island Club West in Florida. I get in there and they have meetings inside this community. So I, I, so I, I go to this liquor store, get a bottle, go to the meeting, see if I can stop. You know, that was the normal thing I did when I made meetings. And I did that for a while and you know that just didn't, that didn't materialize, and um, the drinking's got really out of control. So I got a job working at the prison in Florida. Again, working with recovered people. That's going to help keep me clean. Let's see. That didn't help. Um, got another DUI in Florida. And um, I'm skipping all around because I do want to focus on where, where I'm at because this, this is where you know it gets bad for me, really, really bad. Um, so I, I'm living and, and, and things look on the outside halfway decent. I'm still traveling. I'm still providing for my family. I always had a home. And, um, you know, inside it was just really, 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 really bad. So the last two or three years, I lost my job at the jail, got a DUI. I went to jail as I was getting out of the jail. I bailed out and the CEO was giving me back all my information. He's handing me my IDs and he looks, he says, Department of Corrections, where do you work? I said, what does it matter, sir? I said, I'm bailing out. Do you ask everybody where they work when they get bailed out? He said, well, go back in the cell. I have 48 hours to let you out and I'll call every fucking jail in the state of Florida, find out where you work and I'll get you fired. He said, okay. So I told him and he put me back in the cell and I listened to him call the jail and act for a captain. He told the captain I was sitting in there for DUI. So I came out and I resigned effectively immediately the next day. And from that point on, it was, it was, I've never, I mean, it was, it was over at that point. Um, at that point, I became at home every single day. I would start my morning at the liquor store at nine in the morning, usually 845 to get them jitters out of my body. You know, if, if I could pull up at 8.30, even that half an hour was serenity for me in front of the liquor store, waiting for it to open. As long as I had money and I knew that this, I knew that, that store was open, I was okay. Um, and that took place for a while. And usually by 12 noon, 11, I was done with my first pint. I returned to the liquor store again, another pint. 
And that was um, that was for years. And that was every day. Oh, that was a lot in between there. It was a lot of calling my mother, a lot of manipulating, a lot of uh, blaming my wife for things that I'm doing. So I can get help, a hotel in a couple of days, send me money, a lot of send me monies, a lot of send me monies. Always played the victim with my mother. You know, I have, my mother's so special to me. You know, that woman, I, I used her kindness, her love for me for years to get what I wanted, you know. You know, so, so, you know, my, my wife kind of left me to just fend for myself there. Yeah. You know, I just wrecked myself to death. It was, I wasn't a part of the family. They would go out to Disney. My passes just stopped for every amusement park. They weren't getting renewed and my family just living. And I was just home drinking myself to death. And that's just the way it was. Um, I was okay with that. And, um. I don't know when this was, it was sometime in January. I don't know. I'm actually, I'm not even sure, but January 2021, I believe. I was, um, I was sitting on the couch in my neighbor's house because I had been staying over there right across the street from my wife. She didn't want me there, but she smelled alcohol. So I, I would stay over my across the street for weeks at a time um, so I can muster up a couple of minutes to not have it on my breath. Um, and I was sitting on the couch. I woke up from a comatose state and severe stomach pains. I mean, terrible stomach pains. And um, let me back up a little bit. About a year before that, you know, I used to be 215 pounds. About a year before the day that I'm talking, getting ready to talk about the things that were coming out of my body. I, I mean, just like black tar. I was, I couldn't hold my bowels. I was, you know, shitting on myself, pissing on myself constantly. That walk to the liquor store in the morning, the whole walk, I was throwing up blood until I started, until I got my liquor in me. There was no eating food. I couldn't tell you when I sat down and had a meal. It was like that for a long time, for a long time. And so I wake up and my stomach is, I know Zay normal, you know, it's just in the stomach pain, it's something different. So I go to the hospital, right? And, and here's where things get foggy for me. So a lot of this, I was filled in. I remember getting up and being in pain. And, uh, I remember going to the emergency room and I remember having to call the cops in the emergency room on the emergency department. All right, so I'm gonna fill you in a little bit of what happened. So I get there and um, I get there and I wanna leave the hospital and go drink. So they're calling my wife to tell her to please hurry up. I rip everything off. I'm septic now, so I don't really know what's happening. I don't have too much memory of this. But I know that by the time she came to the hospital, I was standing in front of the hospital naked, full of feces. Don't remember any of that. She came with my stepson and cleaned me up, took me home, and brought me to Celebration Hospital. This was in Orange Lake in Orlando and, or Claremont. And I called the cops on the nurse because they wouldn't just let me out because it probably wasn't my best interest not to. 
But the cops came and said that it's all right. He can do what he wants to do. And they let me sign out looking like that, you know, probably like a fucking fool, I'm sure. Right. And um, so they take me to Celebration Hospital. I guess I stayed in there for 11 days. I don't remember um, any of that. But I remember when I came to, I, uh, you know, I came to, and my mother was in the room. And uh, she, you know, she got up, gave me a hug. And we started talking and she, you know, she was just crying. And, you know, I, I, it was a whole lot of stuff said. And the nurses that came, we said, all right, can I just run and get a cup of coffee, Scott? And I said, yeah, yeah. She left the room and one of the nurses said, sir, can I check your bag? And I assumed that she was talking about my IV bag or something like that. And she went motion towards my stomach. And I said, what, what are you doing? And she said, oh, I'm sorry. She turned around and walked out. Didn't say nothing. And look, fucking ostomy bag. So my mother comes back in. She's crying now because she didn't know how to tell me in the beginning. And I'm like, what the fuck did I just do to myself? So I'm, you know, I'm sitting in this hospital bed with this ostomy bag on. I cannot walk. I have tubes, drains coming out of every part of my stomach. Ah, I got cirrhosis of the liver. 39 years old. I was sleeping across my neighbor's house for months at a time. Hadn't been a part of my family for years. You know, it was so bad that I, you know, I couldn't go return home because my bathroom was on the second floor and I couldn't make it up the stairs. So my mother, the same person that, you know, God, doctors, excuse me, that God saved and doctor said wouldn't be around. You know, if he got a hotel and uh, my mother made my doctor's appointments with me for six weeks. I was there, my mother told, called her job and said, if I don't have a job when I come back, that's your guys' business. I'm not leaving the state without my son, period. And my mother did things, my mother cared for me. You know, my mother, I couldn't tie my own shoe. I couldn't put a sock on, could not walk. I was shaking so bad, I couldn't feed myself. Oh, man. Kids were scared to look at me. No, but that, the crazy thing is, crazy thing is that lasted about I don't know. I stayed in the hospital, stayed in Florida for six weeks. You know, I didn't drink for six weeks. My mother was there and I couldn't walk. So I get back to Pennsylvania. Yeah. I'm going back to my mother's house now. God bless her heart. Obviously, I moved out for a while. My mother got a brand new room for me, just created a room, furnished it for me to care me. And, uh, you know, that lasted about a month. Right back, right back to where I started, right? So I got this ostomy bag on, and um, when I'm outside, it protrudes a lot, and I didn't want people to see, so my mother, of the kindness of her art, orders me this Velcro thing that goes around you, so it doesn't uh, 
It looked so visible, right? For me, that became the very perfect spot to hold a pint of vodka. And that's what I did. You know, everybody in the liquor store knew me. They knew what was about to happen every morning. Every morning, I'd buy my liquor. $4.34, the cheapest vodka I could afford. Buy my pint, lift my shirt, unstrap the Velcro, put it right next to my ostomy bag. That's how I started my day. That's how I finished my day. And at that point, I was on a complete suicide mission. You know, I was in this fucking house by myself. I lost everything possible I could give away. I gave away. I'm fucking 39 years old, back in my parents' house, jobless, homeless, ostomy bag on, right next to my pint of vodka, and there's nothing I could do about it. Nothing. That's the way it was going to be. That was it. You know, I just wanted it to hurry up and just, just end. However, possible. You know, there was no solution inside of me. There was only one. That was keep going. Because that was the only thing that, you know, gave me any kind of what I thought was relief. I, I don't know. So. So I'm in this, I had this ostomy bag on. And, um. They said it should take about a year to get it come off. And uh, about seven months into it, the uh, doctor asked me, right? He asked me, have you stopped drinking? Are you ready? You think you're ready? You had the surgery? Because it looks like, you know, seven months in, you can reverse it. Sure, I'm ready, right? So I, uh, had a reversal surgery. This is October 5th, 2021. That's my sobriety date. Right? That's the date I have scheduled for the surgery. And um, I drank up until that day. For me, getting that ostomy bag off, you know, I was just going to continue the same path. This time, you know, maybe with a little less embarrassment. You know, this time you don't really want to be in the club or in the bar. The ostomy bag on. So now I'm going to continue on my path of destruction just without the ostomy bag on. That was the plan. And um, so I go into the hospital on the 5th. And um, I don't know exactly what happened. But I, I go to the hospital on the 5th. I have the surgery. And, uh, you know, I'm not really thinking about drinking at that moment because I'm in the hospital, you know. So I'm supposed to be in there for three days. So after two days, doctor comes back and says, oh, we have to go back in. We ha you have some sort of infection, you know, some sort of infection. Okay. So they open me back up. So here's two surgeries in one week. Next week. Well, I've got to go back in. I'm going again. 
the third surgery from October 5th. So that three-day stay is now increasing. Now I'm in there a couple weeks. For the last time, last week he comes in, he says you need another surgery. The third surgery, or fourth, excuse me, third surgery I had in that time period, he put an ileostomy bag on the opposite side of where the ostomy bag was now. So now I've been in the hospital for 29 days. And to get an ostomy bag removed, and now I'm leaving the hospital with a smaller version of that on the other side. <laughs> but again, October 5th is still my sobriety date. Right? And this time I left the hospital, I still was unable to walk. All those things I experienced after the surgery, um, the first time I still experiencing. I don't know what happened. You know, I started I started making meetings at the other fellowship, at a different fellowship. Excuse me. I figured by that I had that much. I, I, you know, that's the first time I had twenty nine days ever. That that's the longest I could ever accrue besides a day, couple days in jail here. And, a couple of days of rehab. So after the 29 days, I, I don't, you know, God truly must have did for me what I couldn't do for myself because I, I started making the closest NA meeting at near my mother's house, maybe once a week, not doing anything, just sitting there for the meetings. I really couldn't walk too well. So I would just go sit there for an hour and a half and um, that was it. So I mean, that went well, I guess. You know, I didn't drink. I really wasn't doing anything. I just wasn't drinking. And um, that lasted about four months. And about four months into it, in that four months, I had been speaking to my wife again back on the phone. And we had been talking. And she told me that she was going on a cruise. So four months sober? Of course I can go. I'm ready now. Are you kidding me? I'm sober. Four months. Let's go on this cruise. I'm getting my family back. And I'm going to go on this cruise, and that's it. I'm sober now, right? But thank God for this cruise, because I go on this cruise, and um, I find the Friends of Bill meeting, and uh, there was about 12 people there, and uh, there was a couple from California, and that's what they did. They spent their retirement going from cruise ship to cruise ship, carrying the message so families could recover and you know, hang out with, you know, and do this on the ocean. And I thought that was amazing. I just thought that these people's love and dedication to this program, that they showed up. For, I mean, it, we were there for hours and hours and hours. I had such a great time with these people. And most of them were, you know, from this fellowship, Alcoholics Anonymous. And I was so intrigued by this. And so, you know, just, I had so much hope in that damn cruise. I came back and I started making Alcoholics Anonymous meetings in my area. Boy, did that change things for me. My God, you know, my God. And, you know, my story is not one of, you know, I don't have one of these stern sponsors. You know, I, I, I don't have that. Do I want that? I don't know. Do I need that? I don't know. That's not, you know, that's not my, uh, that's not my story. But uh, what I did find, I did find a home group of people that, you know, and I'm all over the place with this, but the real meat potatoes is really what I want to get at for any new community here is, you know, I think that finding that home group for me just answered so many questions in my life, took care of so many things by default, by just sticking around. 
You know, I, I love my home group. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I love the people that I'm able to fellowship with. You know, so you know, going to skip to what it's like now. What it's like now for me, you know, I get up, I make a meeting every day. I try to be of service. I'm not one of these big book dumpers, but, you know, I'll damn sure do what I can for this program at any moment of the day for anybody. Um, I get to live a life beyond my wildest dreams, just my little dreams, you know. I don't know what I was begging for in that mirror when I wanted things to stop. But I couldn't imagine them stopping and me being able to experience this love that I get to experience. You know, I have friends in alcohol synonymous. That's a big thing for me. You know, I was lonely and miserable for so long. I have people, you know, when I when I when I go to my home group and I see who's on, I smile. You know, I, I love my friends. I, I love to listen sometimes with my camera off and somebody comes in and they share about their problems. I love watching the other hands that are going up because I know what they get ready to get. You know, if they get ready to get what I get, then they're in a good place. You know, I love when a newcomer comes in because if you're going to get something like I got, then shit, you're in for a fucking ride, man. Because this is amazing. You know, I get happy when people come back. I get happy. This guy in my meeting, he's been coming there every day for two weeks. I love it. I love it. I love it because he might just feel what I feel. And if you feel what I feel, then shit, this is amazing. You know, amazing, amazing that, you know, I looked at those, I looked at, I looked yesterday, my oldest daughter, she was a hard nut to crack and, you know, she probably seen the most and she was the most, you know, she could tell she has a lot of resentments, but you know, I was looking back at my Facebook and her Facebook. And when I first moved to Florida, our pictures in restaurants were always sitting next to each other. We're always smiling. I love that girl. That's my firstborn, you know. And I did some wrong to her. But I, yesterday in that restaurant, I just, I, you know, me sitting next to her, going over the menu together, looking at our phones, laughing, joking. You know, I did a lot, you know. I'm lucky to still have the people around that love me. You know, I, I can clearly remember my mother's face sometimes when I was drunk back and it was love, concern, and all kind of worry wrapped in one. You know, I don't put my mother through that stress now. I don't, she'll, she'll look at the phone and wonder what's on the other line. You know, there's no madness in my mother's life and she's still a sick woman. And I just thank God that I can show her some peace. You know, that's big for me. I couldn't imagine raising me. I couldn't imagine being my fucking mother. How hard is that? You know, to be my mother and to be living, you know, to be living and be my mother, still be sane is amazing. And, uh, you know, I have a great relationship with my family. You know, my family trusts me. They love me. It's just... I feel like I'm part of something, you know, people want me around, you know, I, I had the, I had the, uh, I had the pleasure 
in sobriety of taking my whole entire family on vacation, not, not some of them, my whole family on vacation. You know, and I'm not polishing my own grass, but I was able to pay for it. I was able to facilitate it. And they were able to trust me enough, you know, to all come together for that day. That's amazing for me. You know, I, I only do these things through Alcoholics Anonymous. I know I fight a battle. I know my journey was rough. I don't know if I'll ever make it back. You know, I don't know if I'll ever make it back. You know, that's why I don't plan on leaving. You know, I, um, I set aside my moments for AA, no matter what, period. I come on this meeting sometimes bearing a lot of shit. I am now, you know, I am now a lot of shit. I think it's not absolutely perfect for me. But the one thing I absolutely do know is I never want to touch another drink again. You know, I, I, I'm fortunate I don't walk around with fear as much as I did. I traveled a lot in the airports and I, that, that's no bother to me. I have friends who are going to drink. You know, if I, if I do all this work and just to isolate them, what the hell is the point? I spent enough time hiding under a rock. I'm out here to live, period. And, you know, the fact is I'm a grateful alcoholic. So grateful alcoholics don't drink. I can't be grateful. I can't be a grateful alcoholic and, and think about drinking at the same time. Grateful alcoholics just don't do it. So whether I'm in the bar room, I'm in the airport, I'm in the, I don't care where I'm at. I'm so grateful to be alive and to be sober that I just don't drink. And I'm so grateful that I can travel freely. You know, sometimes I, you know, I hear sometimes people talk about, you know, being just stuck. I talk about commercials setting them off. Well, shit, I like TV. I'm going to watch commercials. I don't care what commercial comes on. If a commercial is going to break me, then shit, maybe I'm in the wrong program. Maybe I'm working the wrong program. Excuse me. Maybe I'm working the wrong program. So I'm working a strong program. Then a commercial don't set me off. You know, I have too much love, too much to give back and throw away. Um, today, I experience things in my life. Anything, anything. You know, I, I went on I went on a cruise in sobriety looking for those same friends to build meetings. And they didn't have any. I found a quiet place in that boat for five days. I brought my big book, brought some prayers with me, and I looked over in the ocean. I did not drink, right? Because I was able to tap into what I learned in these rooms. I was able to tap into what my friend Stacy said, who I absolutely love. I see her looking at her screen. I know I love you, Stacy. You know, I'm able to tap in. I'm able to tap into that anytime, anywhere. And, um, you know, I just take this thing one day at a time. You know, I'll be on this meeting tomorrow, and that's just the way it's going to be, God willing. But as a matter of fact, when I leave this meeting, I'm going to be of service to my Sunday meeting, and I'm going to share that meeting, right? I'm going to be filled with AA today. And before I get on a plane, I'm sure I'm going to make an in-person meeting in town. I'll probably make one in the airport, right? No big deal. You know, I get to live a life beyond my wildest dreams today. And I'm so grateful for the people that are in my life today. I have true friends in Alcoholics Anonymous, true friends I feel a part of. I feel things in the brick and mortar when I hug people like I wouldn't anywhere else. You know, I ran, I ran into someone who I only knew her voice from these squares. I, I just heard her voice in Walmart and the embrace I got in Walmart changed my day. I love seeing people win. I love seeing people stay sober. I love seeing people get through adversity. I love seeing people come in. This gives me strength. I love this program, you know. This is no other way. I ride this with my kids. My daughter, my 11-year-old daughter, loves alcohol synonymous. She says hi to my friends in the morning on her way to school. 
She loves my friends. She went to my anniversary celebration, you know, my celebration uh, anniversary meetings. I take it to meetings sometimes with me. I remember when I made 300 days, it was on her birthday. And I woke her up to get her ready for school and said, happy birthday. She's 11 and that raspy just getting up out of bed for us. She said, imagine me 300 days today, you know? Congratulations. That's what she said to me, right? On her fucking birthday. You know, it's moments like that that take me further and further and further away from the drink, you know? And I failed to mention my grandkids who I'm gonna hate leaving down here. I'm gonna end with that. Uh, you know, I was fortunate enough to have two grandkids and boy, did that change my life, you know? Uh, one is three and the other one's a couple months old. I don't keep track at that age. I'm not into the whole month thing. When they start turning years, we'll start tracking it then. But, you know, I have the, I have, you know, and I said this for, I only have the fifth May 19 months of sobriety. <laughs> But, you know, I'll end with this, you know, through the grace of God, I can't change what happened in my life with my kids. I don't think I'm having any more. I don't want any more. You know, they seen what they seen. You know, I'll make my amends and make my living amends and stay sober for them. But this program gives me the only opportunity I have. My grandkids will never, ever see me with a drink in my hand, ever, you know? That version of me, that fucking monster, you know, unless there's some videos floating around out here, which there very well might be, you know, my grandson, Katie, and my granddaughter, they won't know that version of me. And I don't, I don't know, I don't want to keep experimenting, but in my opinion, just my opinion, just this fucking drunk's opinion, the only way to stick around without balls and arms. So for me, the choice is easy, you know? You know my, my daughter wants to be involved in my grandkids' lives. Calls me over to show me things. She wants me to be a part of their life. This animal. Oh, it's been a rough one. It's been a long, hard journey for me. You know, a very, very long, hard, painful, 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 painful journey. And uh, I'm just truly grateful, grateful that I got it, man. Ever for the grace of God go I. have a lot of people around me that struggle. God save the wretch like me, I guess, huh? You know, I'm going to end there. I love you guys. Um, I could probably go on for so much longer. My story is endless. But, you know, I love you guys. And Stacy. you know, thank you for, you know, doing for me what I can't do for myself. You know, I get a chance to speak for a little bit more than three minutes. And uh, that's truly a blessing. Um,
um, so grateful to be here this morning. So grateful to have a God in my life. I'm so grateful for you guys. I'm grateful for this program. I love you guys. Thanks for letting me share. That was Scott B. And thank you so much for being another speaker on our speaker series edition at Two Sober Chicks. I'm Lisa. Make sure to join us on a regular edition of our show with Julie and Lisa. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you have a great 24.